Welcome to Wood Fortress Podcast. This is your host, Justin Golding, and today we are lucky to have a special guest with us, Anne Hillerman, New York Times bestselling author of the award-winning Lipon, Chi, and Manuelito mystery series. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I am delighted to be part of your podcast. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being here, and to prepare for our conversation, I read a number of your books, and I really, really enjoyed them. Great. And in your books, you write in the third person with multiple voices, which I find really intriguing. Each of the characters' voices are are very clear. And uh, could you talk about how each voice is distinct to you, the writer? Well, sure. And that's an interesting question. No one has ever asked me that. Um, First of all, the voice of Joe Leaphorn. Joe, um, the series that I write was a series that my father began back in 1970. And Joe Leaphorn was the character with whom he inaugurated the series. So Joe Leaphorn is uh, very thoughtful. He um, has a, a master's degree from University of Arizona, so he's educated. He also spent a lot of time in the uh, Navajo police bureaucracy. So he kind of also filters his expressions through through that uh, through that mirror. You know, he doesn't want to say anything too rash, too quickly. So so that's the one voice. Then uh, the next character was Jim Chi, and he was the second detective my father created. And he um, is a sergeant with the Navajo police. He has a very strong spiritual side and a very strong empathetic side, and I think. For a, 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 a police sergeant and also for a man of his age, both, both of that is, is a little bit unusual. So Chi tends to veer on the side of kindness, on the side of giving people the benefit of the doubt, rather than being sort of as nuts and bolts as just the facts, ma'am, as <laughs> Lieutenant Leaphorn is. And then the third major character is, as you mentioned, Bernadette Manuelito, a rookie police officer, and has basically worked her way up to now be an officer who is respected. I mean, she's still um, a, a, a cop, a, a beat cop. You know, she doesn't ha- hasn't been promoted to anything yet, but she's really smart and has some ambition. So I think her voice is perhaps would have more questioning than either cheese or leaphorns. Maybe a little less self-assurance just because of her age and because of her newness in the profession. Also, she is ambitious. And so she tends to ask probing questions and to ask them two or three times just to make sure that whoever she is asking them to, if they've maybe eluded the, the truthful answer the first time, she'll give them another chance and then she'll rephrase the question another time. If either she's not convinced that they're telling her the truth or if she thinks it was the truth but only part of the truth. So I'd say those are probably the, the three main voices. And then there are minor characters, all of whom, of course, also have their own voice. But those, those three were the ones, when I 
thought about taking over the series, those were the three that I started with. And I think the three who impressed me the most and have stayed with me through all, all five of my books. Right. And the, the aspect about this is that with plot, your story is driven by these three main characters. One of the aspects with the distinctive voices that we're talking about is also the different ages they come with. Uh, besides the male-female dy dynamic as well. But I was wondering if you could talk about the different experiences they have because of the different ages they are. They have relationships with each other based upon seniority as well, but also about their experience of growing up as well in different times. That's, that's absolutely correct. So Joe Leaphorn basically is a mentor to Bernie. When Bernie was on one of her first assignments, she worked with him, and that was an assignment where there was a woman who'd been trapped in a, accidentally trapped in a Quonset hut, and no one knew she was there, and eventually she starved to death. And so when Leaphorn, Bernie is with Leaphorn when he discovers her body. And this is a very traumatic thing for both of them, but especially for Bernie, because she hasn't been exposed to that much death. And the fact was a woman, probably close to her own age when she was first imprisoned, really affects Bernie very much. And that is when I think Leaphorn decides, first of all, that this woman is going to be a good officer, because the fact even though her emotions are running high, she does her job, she doesn't complain, she doesn't burst into hysterics. You know, she is there as a professional law enforcement person. And I think that was the incident where, in which Leaphorn decided that this woman was worth, worth his attention. And conversely, Bernie realizes that this man has a lot to teach her. And also that he's a person who responds well to someone who treats him with respect and someone who is a good listener, both of which she is. So there's, there's and I think for his part, Leaphorn sees uh, Bernie as a prodigy who's really worth spending some time with. He recognizes that she's smart, that she has some ambition to move up in the world of law enforcement, and he's happy to help her. Now, the relationship between Leaphorn and Jim Chi is a lot more full of conflict. Jim Chi wanted to be a, what's known as a hatali. I guess we white people would call it a medicine man, a healer, a singer, a person who lives as much in the world of the spirit as in the, in the, the everyday world where, where we live. And so Leaphorn thought that it was just bizarre that a person who was interested in law enforcement also would spend so much time learning the complicated Navajo chants, learning the sand paintings, studying to be able to do that. And he thought, this, is, this just won't work. Being in law enforcement, you have to be ready to be on call. How can you spend nine days doing a ceremony? So there was immediate conflict there. Also, Jim Chi is more of a, let's follow this lead and see where it goes. Whereas Leaphorn, like I mentioned earlier, is more of a, by, I mean, he, he has good intuition, but he's more of a by-the-books guy. So there was all of that conflict. And I think, too, Leaphorn expected more respect from Chi. And I think Chi expected that Leaphorn would cut him, cut him more slack. So there's that, that kind of in, inborn conflict between the two of them. Chi and Bernie. Chi basically uh, had, had several girlfriends who every reader knew. They, those were not the girlfriends for Jim Chi. <laughs> So when my father introduced the character of Bernadette Manuelito as a minor character in maybe his 
seventh or eighth book. It was The Fallen Man. I think the readers thought, aha, this is an interesting character. I bet, I bet you they're going to get married. You know, readers, <laughs> readers are so much smarter than writers. But my dad didn't realize it until his very last book, actually. I mean, he had them be engaged, but you never quite know how that's going to work out. But in his last book, uh, Chi and Bernie are married. So thank goodness when I started writing about their relationship, I did not have to have a lot of, is this the guy for me? Is this the girl for me? All of that stuff that, I mean, mystery readers, they like a little of that, but basically, basically they want to know who did it, right? right. And why? Yes. And who is this victim anyway? So I didn't have to deal with that romantic part. I could just let them get on with it. And I thought after so many books, poor Jim Chi, so many bad girlfriends, so many, so much heartbreak, that it would be nice for him to just be able to relax and right. enjoy being with the woman he loved. Yeah. So he is head over heels in love with Bernie. Bernie is in love with him, but Bernie also has a mother who needs her attention, has a little sister who's raising havoc, and is... I would say probably more focused on her career than Jim Chi is. So I don't think dad actually envisioned this conflict, but as a, a working woman who has balanced family and parents and carpooling and, and do, did I thaw out the chicken for dinner, all of that stuff that goes along with the modern world, I thought, well, Bernie is living on the, on the Navajo Nation, but clearly she's a woman in the modern world, so she is gonna be balancing all of this too. Right. So did it's, that did that answer your question? It, it does indeed. And actually, a follow up on that is that uh, you uh, exemplify that conflict because uh, big man, an officer in the force, uh, his wife is is pregnant, having a child, and it, it sparks a conversation between Chi and Bernie in the sense of uh, when she says, "Are you ready for children?" I'm not. He doesn't respond. He just kisses her on the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I had so much fun writing that, that, whole, that whole scene because, as you remember earlier in that scene, Bigman, and he's, you know, he's a law enforcement guy too. He's dealt with all kinds of right. terrible, life-threatening stuff. And he is basically terrified of becoming a father. <laughs> and so he comes over to Chi just to kind of, even though Chi isn't a dad himself, he respects him. He's his sergeant and they've been through hard times together. So he basically comes over to Chi with the, the guys of bringing him a watermelon, basically to say, I got to talk to somebody about this and you're, you're the closest, the closest bro. So what do you right. think? And she gives him a lot of good advice. And I think from that advice, the reader, at least I hope the reader gets the sense that she would be glad to be a dad. Yes, yeah. you do. Yeah. You well, do. thanks. I, I, <laughs> As I said, it's, you, you set up the conflict nicely because it's all, well, Bernie says it outright. I'm not ready. And yeah. he doesn't respond because he's like, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's the other thing about Jim, Jim Chi. He knows when to he knows when to speak, when to kind of assert himself, and when to just let the let the waves roll on and and see where he ends up. Right. Well, I, I want to obviously character plot go hand in hand, and the question I have is how you break down the plot because you have to watch every last thing that each person does because the pieces come together from the multi-voice part. What happens to Chi, what happens to Bernie, what happens to Lee Pond, especially in your latest book, The Tale Teller. And you know, the bottom line to that is that a random call of a missing person. You break the plot down and it's viewed through these three strong voices that you have. 
and it, then it all comes together at the end in every piece there's there's not a uh strand that's unused shall we say oh you are too kind <laughs> <laughs> actually there were a few str- a few strands that i had to snip off that were <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about it in a moment <laughs> You know, it's the wonderful thing about writing mysteries is that you're you're able to go down to go down some cul-de-sacs, and the readers kind of expect it. And I know there are a lot of writers, and I think mystery writers as well as writers in any genre, who start out with an outline. Yes. And that way, then if they see that if they see a cul-de-sac coming, they can back up before they get there. Right. But since my whole process is more of a of a circular process, but say I'll get to the end of the story, sure. and I'll realize, oh my goodness, this person who is my villain, I didn't I didn't build I didn't plant enough clues early on. Okay. So then I'll have to go back. And maybe reweave some of some of those threads. So right. it's, I mean, I don't want to make it too obvious, but still, mystery readers. I mean, mysteries. The wonderful thing about mysteries is that they are inside the mystery box. Right. And if you go outside that box, readers may still enjoy reading you, but avid mystery readers will then send you an email saying, "Well, I figured out who it was on page thirty-six, and after that, I was just kind of reading it for the scenery." Or they say, when I got to page 200 and something, and you said so-and-so did it, I was really disappointed because you hadn't given me enough information to figure that out myself. Right. They, and then often they say, so then I went back and I reread it again, and yeah, I was right, and you were wrong. And like, <laughs> 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 then I send them a, a very polite email saying, oh, thank you so much for your astute comments. <laughs> Please keep give, reading. <laughs> yeah, that's what I say. Give me a chance on, on the next book. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, I th- I think that in uh, the two books I just read, um, you, you know, the uh, Cave of Bones and the Tale Teller, I couldn't tell who it was, but at the same time, I wasn't annoyed or upset when oh you didn't leave enough clues because because you did. The key aspects is that what I loved about it with the plot is you broke it into pieces, so each of your main characters had a purpose. And then on top of that, once the reader understood more than each character, because the characters weren't able to come together till later on to share the information. And so that was the exciting part about it as well. It's like, oh, oh, call them, tell them. (laughs) (laughs) They need to know that bit of information. Yeah, yeah. But you know, just like in real life, sometimes you learn things and you don't realize they're important. Right. And so I think that's one of the joys, again, of, of writing mysteries. That's why it's so much fun. Mm-hmm. You can put in little things like that and say, well, she knows it, but he doesn't know it. And she's not going to tell him because she meant to tell him, but then her mother called or, you know, something happened and it just kind of slipped away. And it, it didn't seem that important at the time. Right. Yeah. Just something that happened that you might Right. Have... A little something. Right. Yeah. Which is what I call the perfect uh, setup because the breadcrumb is there for when the reveal happens, you're like, oh! But as you said, because you didn't mark it, so I pay attention to this. (laughs) (laughs) Just something that happened. Maybe you want to remember it or not. Well, you know, the other thing us mystery writers like to do is to call attention to things that really aren't aren't valuable the red herrings yeah and you know and that that happens all the time in law enforcement yes you know so it's it's um it's reasonable to do it and it's kind of fun to do it too right and i think the key one there is the female who's calling leaphorn 
constantly and nobody knows why she's calling. We find out later. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a good one. <laughs> I, w- I want to uh, step back and talk uh, about Bernie a little bit more. My question there for you is, after starring in all five of your books, she's an extremely well-defined character at this point, right up there with Lee Pawn and she... And uh, this is very much your creation. This, you know, Anolita. Uh, could, could you talk about how you got acquainted with her? I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but when you decided you would make her a major voice? Oh, sure. Well, I, I think she, I, I, of course, read all my father's books. So right. I was reading about her, and I have to say she didn't particularly impress me until two of his books. And one was the book um, Sinister Pig. And that's the book in which Bernie decides that because she has this big crush on her sergeant, it's really not professional for them to work together. So she takes a job with the Border Patrol. And on that job, she finds some drug smugglers. And she pretty much has wrapped, and she's getting no support from her, from her supervisors, but she's pretty much wrapped up that case. But she makes a mistake. And so then Jim Chi amazingly comes all the way from the Navajo Reservation and finds her in distress and rescues her. So I thought, well, this, I mean, this character is showing some potential. You know, she didn't, she didn't do it exactly right, but her instincts were good. Then in Skeleton Man, which was uh, my father's second to last book, uh, Bernie has gone down to the Grand Canyon with Jim Chi and his friend Cowboy Dashi, the Hopi uh, law enforcement man. And Cowboy and Jim say, okay, honey, you wait here on the trail in case the bad guys come and we're going to go, we're going to hike on and solve the crime. So Bernie doesn't wait there. She goes down and she finds a woman who's been kidnapped. She finds some stolen diamonds. She basically wraps up the whole situation. But then, because my dad loved those male characters, um, there's a flash flood, and Jim Chi saves the day again. (laughs) So after that book, I thought that really that Bernie deserved more attention, that she had tremendous potential to become a full-fledged crime solver. So I mentioned it to my dad. I said, you know, I think readers would really like to see, you know, this is 20-whatever when I told him, you know, a a woman rise to the forefront. And he said to me, basically, he said, thanks for the idea, but I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't say it in exactly those words, but the message message was clear. clear, Yes. So then after he was gone, and I thought it was really a shame for the stories to end too, I remembered Bernie, and I thought, there's no way I can be Tony Hillerman. But maybe if I, if I bring in this new character with her new voice, I can continue the series in a way that will get, be satisfying to me and will be enough in the, in the uh, template of what my dad had created that some of his fans might come along with me. Right. Which is very interesting, the first scene that you write, <laughs> Spider-Woman's, yeah, you know, it's Lipon is shot. And who's there? That's right. It's Bernie. That's exactly right, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I thought, I, you only have one chance to make a first impression. Yes. And there are so many books in the world. And I thought perhaps people who had read the Hillerman Mysteries would see the name Hillerman and they would think, oh, Tony had a new book. And then they would look again and they'd say, oh, it's not Tony. Who is this? this and right. But may, I thought if they picked it up, I would have, what, 10 pages to right. get their attention? And so I thought I have to do something pretty dramatic so they'll keep reading. So that was why. 
And and I did get a lot of flack. People said, oh, I couldn't believe you did that to Joe Leaphorn. Oh, what were you thinking? And I was, throughout the whole book, I was afraid he would die. Right. And I don't want to give away too much, but it's fairly obvious that anybody who takes on a series with beloved characters is not going to kill him off. Right. But... Well, yeah, I don't it, think that's too much of a spoiler. Well, I think that's an interesting <laughs> quote because when I read the book, the, you didn't shoot him in the shoulder, you didn't shoot him in the chest or the leg, you shot him in the head. <laughs> First 10 pages, leap on mystery, you shot him in the head. <laughs> well, also, I was thinking it might take me a few books to be able to deal with this character. So he needs to be wounded badly enough that I can uh, legitimately set him aside while right. I uh, focus on developing Bernie, on de- you know using Chi more as a as, as a stronger supporting character rather than just kind of a kind of a shill for for Joe Leaphorn. And then I would just see what happened, you know, and right. what how what did I want to how did I want to do what did I want his future to be? Right. And it's interesting about uh, the Tale Tower. There are some interesting themes of sexism, misogyny in the book. And you really line that up with uh, Officer uh, Wilson Sam. It was quite a handful, isn't it? (laughs) He is. He is. But I think we've all met people like that. I mean, there's... Like perpetual adolescence. Right. They never, and I hate to, I hate, hate to stereotype, but it seems like it is more common among men. Yes. And so there is, I mean, all over the, the country, there's a shortage of police officers. And so, and particularly on the Navajo Nation, because they're, they are often by themselves. They don't have adequate backup. They're paid less than a lot of their counterparts. So the Navajo Police Department has a lot at stake in keeping officers, particularly officers who, who they've already trained, who have some right. experience, even if they're jerks. So I think, but I, I enjoyed writing about that character. It's kind of fun. Yeah, you know, lots of writers say writing about villains is more fun. Writing about bad guys is more fun. So right. writing about that guy was fun. Yeah, very disrespectful even to males as well. Well, not just female. Very disrespectful to other female characters, Bernie included. And um, right, but he, also... he interviews a woman at a convenience store, yes. and who turns out was an, it was actually a vet. yeah, yeah, and he doesn't he doesn't get it. Where I I had so much fun writing that scene. Lee Porn then later comes to interview her, and hearing through her eyes, and she is fairly kind. Mm-hmm. To Officer Sam. And then when Lee Porn is rehashing that with Officer Sam and how he is so uh, disrespectful of her, it, I, it, was, it was fun to write that. Right. And it's interesting the theme as serious, uh, uh, besides uh, a workforce uh, situation, you know, where they're trying to get this man to be a better police officer to the community and with his colleagues, the character with um, uh, Rayanne, am I saying it right? Or yeah, Rayanne? Rihanna. Uh, Rihanna. Um, basically, there is a character who wishes or believes he should be able to control her or own her, and it has deeper, stronger connotations and connections that we find out moves the story along that have major issues. And I found that interesting about that, again, that male control over women. I don't know if you meant that, but it's like, oh... That's very powerful. Yeah, yeah. And the other, it's Rihanna's, Rihanna, who's a, a, another in- interesting character, a, a young woman who has a, a checkered past, shall we say. She is, is very, very fond of her grandfather and yes. very respectful of him. But 
ashamed of some things that have happened in her life. And that sort of unspoken, unspoken truth creates a lot of problems in the book. Right. Just as it does in real life. Yeah, keeping the secret, hiding yeah. something. Yes. And sort of underestimating the people who love us. And thinking, if I, if I tell him what, what happened and how how badly I misjudged a situation, yes. he won't love me anymore. Right, Not realizing that he, would, he will love her forever, no matter what. Right, and it's interesting you have uh, uh, Lee Pond say that in, in Navajo later, saying he's stronger. We, we all feel guys are stronger than we look. Yeah. You know, and you're right. Uh, the secret that, uh, that allows somebody to manipulate her and have control over her uh, and the desire for the man to want to do that. And again, it's major, it's major plot points that we don't want to give too much away, but right. I, I found it interesting that uh, certain themes of, of uh, male dominance, uh, male-female dynamics. And it comes through uh, gently as well. With Leap on Louisa, uh, you know, she's being quiet so you can think, and then he turns to look at her, and she's crying as she drives, which is every man's, oh, no, what did they do? <laughs> <laughs> Moment. <laughs> well, I, I had... Uh, that. That whole relationship was interesting, and I think so often when people love each other and or respect each other, and one person has been in the caretaker position, and then the other person recovers, and the other person kind of comes back to who they were, it's difficult on for relationships to go back to where they were when it was more of a, when when both partners were on more of an equal level. And I think, I mean, and then compounding that with Leaporn and Louisa are some cultural differences and probably some assumptions that go with, say, people who are in the, the later part of their life rather than, say, people like uh, Jim and Bernie. Right. Well, it's an interesting relationship because it, it, they live together, or they're housemates, but it is portrayed as platonic, but there is a deep bonded intimacy and they go through hard times in this book. Yeah. As you said, she spent a lot of time helping Joe get healthy again after being shot. And now he is. He's, he's more independent. Right. And right. she has to work out again who she is and, and, and what this relationship is. And, right. You know, and I don't right. think it gives away too much to say she, she kind of leaves their home together. Right. For right, a bit, right. and they have to work out. Yeah, yeah. What's going on? And I, I wanted to know, as you said, you, you spoke of what one part of it. It's the caretaker who no longer has the role of caretaker. Right. But right. I think, and, and I think the other part is the person who's been cared for, thinking, "Wait a minute, I'm being suffocated here. Yes. I need, I need a chance to." To make some mistakes, I need a chance to fall on my plate, on my face, or I will never be independent again. Right. And it's hard for the caretaker person to see the person they love do things that are embarrassing, do things that maybe are even hurt, even hurt that person. You know, things, self-inflicted things. Right, and what makes it more interesting is that he still needs her because uh, language, the the English language, is, has not come back to him after the head injury. Right. Uh, whereas Navajo has, but he needs her for his investigation. So he still needs her, although at the same time he's pushing her away. Right, 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 right. So, it's kind of the same situation you have when you're raising teenagers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know you need me, but you're pushing me away. Exactly. <laughs> 
I, I wanted to... They just really need you, though, because you have the car keys. Right. Yes. We have the show. The car keys and the, and the, and the, and the checkbook. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, an element in your latest book also is the long walk. Right. You talk about that. That, that comes up. And I found that interesting. Um, the the two-part two question. Uh, the first part is, when did you know that this historical event would be a part of your latest narrative, the, the book, uh, the, the tale teller? And the second part of it is that there, there are a number of examples throughout history of um, people who have been persecuted, you know, the Jewish people, the Holocaust, the, the Croatia, what happened there, Somalia, and, 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 and the healing process. Because uh, one of the key elements of it is that it happened... It didn't happen yesterday. Right. But 150 it, years 150 ago. years ago. But at the same time, it is generational. Exactly. So the two-part question is, talk about how it affects your characters in the present day and when, also when did you know that you wished to, to include that into this book? Well, when I, when I thought about writing this book, which is the fifth in the series, I thought it's now time for Joe Leaphorn to come back. I thought he's been, I've had him on hiatus long enough, and I felt confident enough as a writer that I could deal with him and present him in a way that, that Dad's long-term fans would appreciate, that he would still be Joe Leaphorn, but he would have a few, um, what can I say, maybe more complications in his character that would be my additions. So if I was going to bring back this pivotal character, I needed a big crime for him to solve. And as I was thinking of this, there was a lot of discussion about the treaty that created the Navajo Nation, which was signed about 150 years ago. The Navajo Nation Museum was preparing a big exhibit, the uh, Bosque Redondo Memorial, which is a, uh, a monument created by the state of New Mexico, the Navajo Nation, and the Mescalero Apaches to recognize the people who were imprisoned there. They were thinking, what can we do to celebrate this, this anniversary? So it was, you know, it was in the air. The long walk was in the air. So, and I think the fact that the Navajo Museum was planning something made me think of the museum, which then led to, and this is the very beginning of the book, so it's not giving away anything, the fact that perhaps there would be an artifact from the Long Walk that would be donated to the museum that, or maybe it wasn't really from the Long Walk, and, and it's not in what the museum received, so maybe the donor didn't mean to give it, or maybe it disappeared, and that's basically the mystery that Joe Leaphorn is working on. Um, a lot of Native American communities, I would say almost all of them, except for our Pueblo people in, in New Mexico and the Navajos, when they were evicted from their uh, sacred lands, they never returned. Basically, European settlement took over where they'd lived. They, moved, they were moved, they were evicted, moved from place to place. And as part of that, a lot of their cultural resources were damaged. The Navajo were the very first Native American people to negotiate a treaty with the U.S. government that allowed them to return to their sacred lands. Hmm. And one basic tenant of Navajo, the Navajo worldview is that you don't focus on the negative. If something bad happens, you deal with it, you figure out how to make it right as best you can, and then you move on. So for many years, there was basically no discussion of the long walk. If eight, something like 8,000 Navajos were moved down to southern New Mexico, and 2,000 of those died, either on the walk or during the imprisonment. 
And the ones who died down there were just buried in mass graves. There's no headstones. There is no, no record of the names of who were lost. So, I mean, this was a huge, huge event in the formation of the Navajo Nation. So as time went on, the uh, philosophy that we shouldn't talk about the long walk sort of morphed into how magnificent were our ancestors, how wonderful was their resilience, that they were able to come back from all of that loss, all of that sadness and heartbreak, come back to their, their sacred land, where, which had been pretty much destroyed by the army. Their crops had been burned, their livestock had been killed, their trees had been, had been chopped down and start over and, and turn themselves into probably the most influential native group in the United States today. So reframing the long walk that way has been of ter terrific benefit to young Navajo people growing up today. And it also, uh, thinking of that kind of gave me, what can I say, gave me the gumption to think this is something that I can deal with in this book. I can deal with this artifact and use it not as a sign of sorrow, but more as a sign of the resilience of, of the Navajo people. That comes across clearly because Joe Lepon <clears throat> talks about that. And it's interesting that the chief in there is the, has the same name as Bernie, last name as Bernie. Yes, so. Manuelito, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And Manuelito's wife, a woman named, named Juanita, Juanita, was a wonderful historical character who, if the, if the American government had been wise enough to understand that Navajo women had as much or more power than the men, they probably would have had women signing that treaty as well as the men. Right. But it was, a, yes, the 19th century. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> Which, it's interesting you, you bring up, uh, and that's a key part of what I wanted to talk about as well, is how culturally they view the world differently. It's completely di different from American culture. And one of the ways is you have detectives uh, or police officers who have to deal with death and the cultural viewpoints that they have about death and about avoiding it or not talking about it. I wonder if you could... Just talk about that for a moment. Right. Well, the traditional Navajo belief, um, well, let me go back. So Christian belief, you know, you would believe a person dies and their soul goes to heaven or it goes to hell, but it doesn't really linger around. Except, I mean, there are there is a strong sort of underlying basis of ghost stories where people don't leave us. And, and most of those ghosts actually are malevolent. Yes. I mean, there are, you know, a few who are nice, but most of them are raising havoc. Right. And um, the Navajo belief, the, the spirit is called the Chindi. And it doesn't really, in the Navajo belief, and I, I'm not Navajo, and I may be uh, overly, overly simplifying this. I'm sure I am. But the, the whether you had a good life or a bad life, if you die uh, after, after early childhood or before you get to be, say, in your 90s, then your Chindi... Uh, is restless and mischievous and sometimes even evil. And it doesn't really matter who you were. That spirit then kind of roams around and wants to cause trouble. So it's best avoided, which is why the, the dead people are best avoided. And if you think about uh, uh, any rural people growing up without medical care, somebody dies, maybe it was tuberculosis, maybe it was the flu, whatever it was, could well have been a contagious disease. Right. I mean, I think it's a belief that was very important in terms of preserving your society. So, but anyway, that's why a lot of a lot of traditional Navajos don't want to have anything to do with the dead. Right. Yeah. And so if you're a traditional Navajo and you're in law enforcement, it's a, an immediate conflict. Right. Yeah. And a lot of police officers have a lot of, of he curing ceremonies, healing ceremonies to kind of get rid of that bad energy. 
Right. Yeah. And I found that intriguing because, as you said, it's an inherent conflict. Yuri yeah. is my, my daily job, like in Cave of Bones. Her right. job was to interact with those bones, the, the person of the dead. Right. And culturally, right. everything culturally is telling her, don't do it. Right, 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 so, right. So right, I thought right. that was, it's, you know, any conflict that a writer can create that uh, enables you to learn more about the characters always fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so too. I feel so lucky that I'm able to write about a, a culture that's so rich and has so many wonderful, wonderful elements that I can I can bring into into my books without really intruding on the privacy and the sacredness and the the things that are just talked about among Navajo. Right, which which ties into two things uh, that you uh, express in the book: the Navajo way, and then their deep love for the landscape. Uh, when I, when I read these books, what I loved about them, there's it's a place and time that's so unique. It's it's kind of as I said, it was, as I read them, it's like Elmo Leonard's description of L.A. or Miami or Agatha Christie, the the English tea room. This is unique unto itself. Uh, the landscapes, uh, you have them driving across it, but more importantly, they deep love. They deep love for this place that they feel is not just theirs, but that place owns them. Right. It's the place that they're meant to be, the place that they've been, that the, the, the spirit world has given them. It's where they belong. It's where they, it's where they, where they began. I mean, right. the Navajo origin stories have them arising uh, between the, the four sacred mountains. I think it's kind of like... Um, Say American American Jewish people would always want to go to, to Jerusalem. It's part of their ceremonies yeah, next year yeah, in Jerusalem. Exactly. Yeah. Or or American Muslims would always want to go to Mecca. It's sort of part of really who my, my basic basic identity is this is this holy place. Right. This is where I belong. Yeah. Because and there are there are wonderful stories about the origin of all of that. I mean, I, I might look out and just see like a little a little knob covered with rocks, but in the Navajo worldview, that rock is where something very important happened that ultimately made the world safe for people. Right, the twins. Yeah. You talk about it a lot. Of it. On top of that, it's interesting how you tie it to where Joe Lepon's mother buries her umbilical cord under a, a peonion tree at there and then and that's why the father when the, when he tells his father he's going to go back yeah the father says well of course you have to come back because your your mother buried your umbilical cord here and that <laughs> ties you forever to this place right yeah yeah and you know it's funny you see that so often i mean in people in like mainstream american people you know you you grow up in say topeka and you move here and you move there and then you get to be in your 60s and you think oh well i'm going to go back to topeka and your high school girlfriend is still there and you fall in love with her and i mean it's interesting it's really interesting how we think of this this pattern it seems to be it's almost a, a universal pattern right people wanting to go back to where where the, whatever was that they called home right I think so. I think that's in, and and that comes to the way you smatter uh, throughout the book, the language of the books, like the, the, the we call, I guess, the English terminology, of, which is based from the Spanish, the Navajo, but they call themselves Diné. Diné. Yeah. And, and Dineta, the the landscape where they where they grow up, where right. they where they live, their sacred home. And I find that interesting to the world at large. It's almost like to the world at large. This is the 
the name we will use, but our private, almost secret name is something we just use for ourselves. Again, it adds a certain layer to your characters and the place. It's almost like you don't know us. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And actually the word Navajo came from the Spanish. Right. Yeah, and it was, I mean, they never called themselves Navajo, but they, one wonderful thing about the Navajo is that they're very adaptive and very resilient. And I think they thought, well, Navajo, you know, if you want to call us Navajo, that's fine with us. And in a way, it's better. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I, you know, again, it, it shows the, the, the term the Navajo way, which is never, you know, it's never just laid out, uh, you know, the 10 rules for the Navajo way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's those little bits, those little stories that, that tell you about don't be in the past, don't look to the future present, which is very Eastern in some sense, but it's not. It's obviously their own culture which um, is another distinctive, which makes your mystery books distinctive. We're seeing the world through their eyes and how they view it rather than uh, a Westerner's eyes. Right. Which, so my question to you as, as a writer, of course, is how do you immerse yourself in that? Because you, it, it's so beautifully done, it's so clear, but how did you enable yourself to find that culture so that you could write about it? Oh, well. Before I started uh, writing mysteries, of course, I spent a lot of time talking to my dad. Right. But uh, my husband and I did a book, a nonfiction book, called Tony Hillerman's Landscape. And we spent a lot of time on the Navajo Reservation taking photos of the places that my dad had mentioned in his books and talking to people and sometimes just sort of hanging out and watching things. And all of that really helped. I did a lot of reading that the Navajos, because they're basically, they're more receptive to outsiders than, than a, lot of, a lot of other native cultures. So there's been a lot written about, written about them, and I read a lot. And I uh, talked to a lot of um, Nav peop Navajo people who are, who are in law enforcement, both about the law enforcement aspects, but also just about cultural things, questions I would have. And all of that helped. And one thing that really helped was the groundwork. And I'm, I uh, never want to take this for granted. I mean, my father was very beloved by, by the Navajo people. A lot of people who are my age read his books when they were in high school. And so, and they appreciated them because there, at that point, there was not a lot written where with Indians as heroes, Indians as basically mainstream American people dealing with the same challenges everybody deals with, but then with the um, infusion of their own culture and their own, their own beliefs. So when I go to the reservation, I run into people, when I tell them my name, they say, oh yeah, I met, I met your dad, or I read your dad's books, or blah, blah, blah. And then they're, they're more likely to, to talk to me. Right. So that was some of it. And it's, you know, I, I am far, far, far from an expert. But since I'm not writing anthropology, since I'm writing mysteries, I'm not, you know, I just, I, I think I, I like to have enough to make the characters seem like real Navajos, but ultimately it's the, the story, the mystery that has to right. drive the books. Right. I agree. And as I said, to, my, to me, it, it comes across and it's part of how I got lost in the stories because it's nice going to a place you don't know and, and learning um, aspects of a culture that you know nothing about. Great. And um, 
it, it was very, that, to, that to me, it's, it, I am sure that for many other readers as well, it's one of the exciting things about it to be able to be brought into that world. Well, you know, when I go out and do talks or book signings, a lot of people come up to me and they say, you know, I worked with the public health service in Fort, Fort Defiance, or I was a teacher in Crown Point, or I was with the legal aid in Tuba City. And I love reading your books because they remind me of what it was like to, to be on the reservation and how much I enjoyed working with the Navajo people. So it always makes me feel good to hear that. Or people say, you know, I've never been to Cameron. And when I read about it in Song of the Lion, I thought, well, that's an interesting place. And so when we were going to the Grand Canyon, we stopped there. And then, <laughs> then we went to the dinosaur tracks and we had a Navajo guide with his water bottle who showed us where they were. So while I'm not really writing travel guides, it's, it's fun that people, it's, well, it's wonderful to be able to write about real places. Right. I mean, it just makes it so much easier rather than having to invent everything. Absolutely. You know, you have to, writing fiction, you have to come up with enough. So anyway, so it's good to have some real spots to, to anchor the stories. Absolutely. And, it, and it, it does it so well. As I said, it's, it's, it creates a unique atmosphere. It creates a unique world, which is wonderful. Family plays a huge part in uh, your stories. It, it doesn't always have to be part of the mystery that's happening but it tells us, it, it fleshes out and makes real the people that are solving the mysteries. And I think it's so important. I was wondering if you could talk about that, because also it's a very unique Navajo way how they view families, little brother, little sister, you know, uncles. It's not always blood related and how they introduce themselves through clans. And so how important the community and families are to your characters. Well, sh well, sure, I'm happy to talk about that. And, you know, mysteries are always full of surprises, even for the writers. So when you first started asking me that question, I flashed back onto Cave of Bones. And in Cave of Bones, there's a really kind of disagreeable woman who's a, who's on the tribal council. Yes. And Whoa. I'm yeah, I'm thinking what and as I'm writing about her, I'm I mean, I'm liking that she's disagreeable cuz you don't want to have everybody everything right. be sunshine and, and unicorns. But I'm I'm thinking I need to think of some something that's making her so ornery. And so at one point in the book, I have uh, Bernie go with her, with the daughter, to the house. And when they get to the house, the, the, the daughter has a brother. And the brother is in a wheelchair. And the brother is, a, is a, a veteran who's been injured. And that just kind of came to me automatically. But I thought, well, of course, this is why. I mean, this poor woman has a lot on her plate, and she's got a right to be a little persnickety and a little grumpy, you know? Porcupine is... Yeah, uh, a porcupine, know. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it would not... And it's, it, there's a sense that you take care of your own in the, in, the, in, in the Navajo world. I mean, there are a few old folks' homes, a few places for people with disabilities, but mostly, if that has happened in your family, that's part of your responsibility to, to handle that yourself and to handle it with the help of your, of your extended family, which would be your, your clans. In the Navajo world, the, the mother and the, the mother's sister is basically a little mother to all the, to, to the children. And her children are like brothers and sisters to her sister's children. 
it's all, it's like an extended family. And so when you're introducing yourself, if you're introducing yourself to another Navajo, you would be sure to, to stay all your clans because who you, what, who your parents were and your grandparents, who you're related to is more important than what you do for a living. It's more important than, than where you live now. You know, that gives, gives your history. So when I introduce myself to Navajos, of course, you know, the fact that Tony Hillerman is my father. And then sometimes I'll say, and my mother's family came from Germany and they were farm, you know, they lived in Oklahoma and they, you know, they had a, you know, a few children and my father's father came from England, or no, came from Germany and my father's mother came from England and she was born in a wagon in Nebraska and, you know, and I find that those, that kind of story sharing right. is more important than saying, well, I live in Santa Fe and I've written five books and blah, blah, blah. It, right. It's more, more kind of connecting on a, on a, a basic level. Right. And I, I find it interesting because it adds community and joy but also complications where they have to sometimes as police officers avoid a situation because they're, they're my clan brother or cousin or uncle and That's therefore right. and therefore is that going to be an issue as yeah. you you know resolve this case yeah um which is is not something you find in other mystery books is is, is a pro i mean you would if oh that's my mother i can't you know right. solve that but it's right. a it's it's a it's a larger community and a more connected community. Right, right. You know, I think some of the mysteries set in the rural South could probably right. draw on on some of that same some of that that same energy. Say, or set maybe in West Virginia, places where people don't move much. Right. Where people people stay put because that's where their ancestors or that's where their great great grandfather was a miner or whatever. And it's kind of the. I mean, uh, increasingly young Navajo people do go off because there are so few jobs. Right. And once you get an education, which is a uh, a very high value in the Navajo world to have an education. But once you get that education, unless you work for the tribe or a nonprofit or maybe a school system, there aren't that many jobs on the reservation. So then you would go away, but then you would come back for for right. ceremonies, for vacations, to make sure everything is everything's going fine now. Right, and the, and the part, part of the reason why I bring that up in the the tale teller, there is dysfunction that. Uh, partly in the you know the Lipon, uh, mystery that he's solving, that has devastating effect, and so it 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 goes to show and and it, you understand how horrible that is because you've set up so well how important family and clans and personal relationships are. So, uh, you know when you came to that, it's it's I find it, how difficult was it to write that. It, was difficult. It was difficult. I, I guess, like most people, I don't like thinking about thinking about that kind of evil. Right. But you have to if you're going to write a good. I mean, maybe some people do like it. I mean, there are those books where you know people are yes, slayed alive and yeah, exactly. out, you know? <laughs> maybe some people like it. But I'm I'm a little uncomfortable in that world. But you have to go there if you're because the writing about the dark side is really what fuels the mystery. I mean, right. what fuels the crime. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, it was difficult. But like you say, I think because in the context of the long walk and how much disruption there was, and then of course, after the long walk came, the, the government agreed to set up schools. And the Navajo Nation agreed to this because they understood that for them to exist and survive in the modern world, they had to speak English, they had to understand the American legal system, all of that stuff. 
But they didn't realize that the government was thinking of boarding schools and that those would be schools where kids couldn't speak their own language, where their hair would be cut, where they couldn't come home for ceremonies, mm. where basically ca causing that whole cultural disruption. They call it historical trauma. Right. And basically that is what's happened in uh, The Tale Teller to what one of my characters, who shall remain nameless of course. for this interview. <laughs> Absolutely. We will not give away details. Well, I have now um, a number of questions I'd like to ask all authors. So we've spoken specifically about your work, which has been fantastic. So these are my uh, basic three or four questions that I'd like to ask all authors because I think that our listeners are very interested in how you got to this place. Okay. So the first question is, how did publishing your first book change your process of writing? Or did it? <laughs> well, it did because, and I'm sure many authors say this, you have a lifetime to write the first book. And then if you have a contract, you have a year to write the second book. <laughs> <laughs> Pressure. Yeah. It changed my process. I mean, in the first book, I really was learning who the characters were. I was, besides writing a mystery, I was learning how to write it. I had never written a novel. I had never even taken a class on how to write a novel. I had, luckily, I had done some workshops. I, I used to run a program called the Tony Hillerman Writers Workshop. And many, many fine authors came to that. And they would talk about how they developed characters, how they did dialogue, how they built suspense. But it was maybe an hour. It wasn't like, you know, like getting a master's. It was just quick little hits. But amazingly, my brain had assembled enough of that that I was able to chug through and get the first novel done. So then with the second novel, I had more confidence, which was a good thing. And I knew the characters better, which was a good thing. But I didn't... Uh, when I started writing... Uh, the second novel was called Rock With Wings. And when I started writing that, I thought, well, this... I now know the format. Bernie and Chi are going to be solving a crime together. And then I'll have Lee Porn doing something. So that was, that was my basic idea. <laughs> so I worked on that book for about three months, and it was just terrible. Nobody, not even I, wanted to read it. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. And finally, it dawned on me that Bernie had been a sidekick for so many books. She was not having it. She didn't. I mean, she was happy to be Chi's partner in, in life, in romance, but she wanted her own crime to solve. She wanted the credit. And so once I kind of worked through that, I, uh, I was able to, to finish that, to get that second book done. So I guess the main change was just having more confidence and realizing as tough as it was that I could make my way through it. Right. Does that, is that sort it, of the it does, answer? It does. I'm going to do a couple of follow-up <laughs> questions with that. When you submitted the book to the agent, the first one, and then the second one, uh, and to the editors, what type of work did you have to do with them? And, and how did that change from the first to the second? Because I've said you had the freedom to write what you wanted in the first and, and then the process. And the second one, you have a team now. Well, I was really, really lucky. I was able to work with an editor who had who'd worked with my dad on the series. So she understood the character. She understood kind of the whole, the tone of the writing. So, and for, and for my first book, I was also, I also had a copy editor who had lived on the Navajo reservation. Her dad had been, I don't remember, a teacher or a government employee anyway. She knew a lot about the Navajo world. So I was tremendously lucky to have them as my team. And they pointed out a lot of uh, mistakes that I made and also a lot of places where I could have uh, enriched the story. 
And I really appreciated that. And then some places where I was just on the wrong track. And my editor was very gentle. She would like, the first two or three paragraphs of the letter would be, oh, isn't this wonderful? I'm so excited. (laughs) And then the the third paragraph would be, but on page such and such, I noticed, and on page such and such, I noticed. And then she'd say, now, what I've mentioned here are the, my main criticisms, but as you look through the manuscript, you'll see five million other things that I have marked. And, <laughs> and you know, I was lucky because I'd been a journalist, and I, I was used to being, and I'd written nonfiction books. Right. So I was used to being edited. I was used to the, the idea that after you submit your manuscript, it becomes a collaboration. And that even though I'm still driving the car, all the kids in the back seat have a right to say, let's stop here and wait a minute, that was the exit. You know, they, they, have a, they certainly have a right to their opinions and 90% of them are, are going to make the book better. And the other 10%, sometimes I just ignored them. And sometimes I thought, I tried to think, why is this person saying this? What is behind this? And maybe what they were saying wasn't really the problem, but, but it led me to figure out what was the problem. Or, if it, or to think, this isn't really a problem, I just didn't explain it well enough, and to just elaborate on that a little bit. Excellent, excellent. Um, the next There quest- was another part to that question, but I didn't. Maybe I covered it, whatever uh, it was. You, you did. It's basically okay. the aspect of... People understanding, I mean, uh, people who are listening to this podcast will be experienced writers or they might be just people starting out and understanding that part of the, the process, the length of something doing something like this is that it's not just the writing of it, it's then the collaborative aspect of how does it get ready to be published. That's exactly right. That's yeah. ex- exactly right. right. So on that point, how many unpublished and half-finished books do you have, if any? I have a book of sort of international stories for children. And they were sort of, it was, I worked on this project years ago, and they were sort of stories that underlined why we need to be nice to each other. And I didn't ever get it finished, and I never submitted it, and I don't, I think it's probably buried in in my computer. And then I had a, I had a, a writing partner. She and I were going to do a nonfiction book about how to deal with aging parents. And then she died before we got that book finished, and now I am an aging parent, so I think I'm going <laughs> to just, just leave that idea in, 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 in limbo for a while. And that same writing partner and another partner and I decided we would try to make money writing romances. And so we did a romance, and we sent it off to some publisher, and we got back a response. We didn't send the whole book. We just sent the, whatever it was, the a query letter and maybe a first chapter. And we got a response back saying, gee, this looks interesting. Why don't you send the whole book? Well, at that point, my, my one writing partner had died. And I really dis- discovered I wasn't that interested in writing romance. And so the other partner said, I'll take care of it. And then she got, she got divorced and got another job and so Right. So there it was. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. That's probably a typical writer's story. Huh? It, it is. It is. And the reason why I asked that is it, I think questions like that give hope to writers out there who understand that writers just aren't miraculously born overnight and appear and suddenly have all these books being published. It's, it's a journey. That's right. Well, I had done a lot of nonfiction books before I switched to fiction. I did a book on Santa Fe Gardens. I did a, a restaurant guide. I did several travel guides. Oh, and that makes me think. I was also working on an, a young adult novel, which was based on my grandmother's experiences homesteading in Oklahoma. Hmm. And I had 
maybe a finished first draft of that book. And I liked it pretty well, and someday I might go back to it. Right. But I realized to do that book, I really needed to do a lot more research into what that period of history would be like. Not only the, the facts of it, but even the language. You know, I, I thought I have, I probably, there are words in here, archaic words that were the perfect words back then. And it would be fun to put those words in. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, that book is, that book is on hold. Probably, maybe to never be resurrected or maybe, I don't know. Right. Well, that's the thing. It still, it lives on in the drawer somewhere. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think also mentioning that you you have been a writer most of your life in newspapers and magazines, and so uh, words are your friend. You you have learned to master the language, and so again I, I mention that because I, I like to say to the people out there who listen to this, you have to do the hard work. That's right. That's right. You and you. I think you have to be your own first and best critic. And no one except ourselves really knows how good we can write. And so I think it's, it's tempting, particularly when you're starting and it's hard, to say, well, this is good enough. But good enough isn't good enough. You have to say, this is really the best I can do. And then look at it again and say, no, it wasn't. I mean, right. but, and the other side of that are those people who spend 30 years writing a novel. Right. So I think it's, you know, it's a balance. At some point, you have to say, this is the best I can do at this point in my life, and, I, and the best I can do with this topic, and I'm going to consider it done and move on to my next project. Which leads me nicely, my link, <laughs> to my last but one question. How long on average does it take you to write a book? And you mentioned somewhat with a publishing contract, they give you a year, but how do you approach that? What is your schedule for doing something like this, and how long do you give yourself? I would say about a year. I try to write in the morning. That's really my best time without distractions, without phone calls, without doctor's appointments, without all of the other stuff of life that you have to deal with. Uh, I have to say my dad was lucky because my mom took care of 95% of that for him. But he still managed to distract himself. You know, he would, <laughs> he would, you know, people would call him and they'd say, "Oh, could you sign my book?" And instead of saying, uh, "Why don't you mail it to me?" he would say, "Oh, why don't you come over?" <laughs> so I think, really, I think, every, I think any creative person, it's you have to make it a priority, and you have to say, "This is my sacred time for me to be doing the work that I have to do." And I can do, I can wash the car later, you know, whatever, whatever, all those things that when, when it's hard, all those things that come to your mind that you really have to be doing right then, you just have to say, no, no, no. go away. I'm no. not doing it. Can't do it today. Yeah, right. exactly. I think, I think, and the other thing, you have to have a place, a, a place that is your place to write. And I know I'm lucky because I have a, a, a big enough home that has a room that I can use in, as an office. But even if it's a spot on the kitchen table. And even if what if you have your writing stuff in a, a shopping bag, you leave it on that table, you get it out, and that's where you work for your however long you however long you can you can squeeze out. Excellent. So the last two part question okay. <laughs> is um, basically right now your latest book, The Tale Teller by Harper Collins, is out there. Just came out in April, I believe. That's right. This April pod- April nineteenth. April nineteenth, and I'm sure you're out there promoting it. So yes, anything you'd like to tell us about that, or anywhere you might be going. And the second part of the question is, of course, what's next? 
Okay, well, I'm going to uh, Arizona next week. I'm going to Tucson and Prescott. I'm going to the Western Writers of America conference. And then, oh, and I'm going to Camado, New Mexico. Not, I'm talking to the, the Catherine County Historic Society. Not everybody has that opportunity. Really, they're lovely people, and it's a beautiful part of the state. And then after that, I'm going up to the next, the last week in June, I'm going to Jackson Hole for the Jackson Hole uh, Writers' Conference. Then I'm going to Denver for the Denver Gold Conference that's sponsored by the Rocky Mountain Mystery Writers. And I'm going to the National Book Festival in September, I think. Anyway, it's, it's not right away. And I'm going to Silver City, New Mexico for the Silver City Creative Festival, which that's not the name of it, it's Southwest something. And, and the theme of it is, is crossing borders. Hmm. So, that's, so that's all coming up. Oh, and I'm going to Los Lunas, New Mexico to do a benefit for their library. And I'm working on the, the sixth mystery in the Jim Chi, Joe Lipor, and Bernadette Manuelito series. It's going to be set on the Alamo Navajo Reservation, which is a little island of Navajo culture in sort of west central New Mexico. And it's near what's called the Very Large Array, which is a assembly a assemblage of radio telescopes that are listening for signals from deep space. And they were one of the first people to dis discover black holes. So... Fantastic. Stay tuned, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you for all that, and, and uh, congratulations on the Frank Waters Award, by the way, for 2019. Oh, thank you. I was so honored and humbled to get that award. It's really... Frank Waters was a wonderful writer and a wonderful um, researcher into, the, into the, the lives of Native Americans, and also like a Renaissance man. He wrote for newspapers. He worked for nonprofits. He reinvented himself a million times, which I think is what all of us writers do. So I was really delighted to get that. Thank you for mentioning that. Thanks. <laughs> well, congratulations, and thank you so much for doing this interview with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for your wonderful questions. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. <laughs>